I'm Jennifer Isabella. And I'm Carrie Johnson. Your co-host for Forrester's podcast, What It Means, where we explore the major changes in the market influencing executive priorities. A quick note before we get started. If you like what you hear from this week's guests, be sure to check out our upcoming CX North America event from June 16th to 18th. The event is 100% virtual and includes our entire roster of CX analysts and experts providing insights and presentations. For more details, visit forcom slash CXNA. That's F-O-R-R.com slash CXNA. And if our episode sounds different than usual, we're recording outside of the studio practicing social distancing. Today, we're joined by senior analyst Kelly Price to discuss why successful experience design requires research. Welcome, Kelly. Thanks for having me. Kelly, I feel like there's not an old saying, but maybe a saying like that design is based on instinct and more art than science. Why is that not true and maybe sort of ground us in why it should be grounded in research? Yeah, so I think that there is a scale component to this, right? A lot of times when you're thinking about the origin story of a company where there is a founder or a small group of people who really understand a problem and are orienting you know, the entire solution around that deep understanding um, of that problem, uh, there is a degree of, of instinct that comes with that. But uh, as a company scales and people get further and further removed from the customer and the customer base becomes increasingly diverse, the number of variables that get fed into what customers want and need, what makes a good experience become increasingly complex. Um, and it becomes increasingly important to be thinking about how do we make sure that we are uh, maintaining those that initial understanding that we had from being so close to something uh, through the practice uh, of research so that we can be um, you know, incorporating that understanding uh, as, as we're scaling um, and as our ecosystem becomes more complex. Kelly, one of the things that's fascinated me is the breadth of what you mean by research. Um, in your research, which you've really pioneered at Forrester, you've talked about the many ways which user research is done, which I think really expands, I think, what is in most people's minds. Can you talk a little bit about that work that you've done? Sure. So I think that one of the biggest misconceptions that comes with research is people tend to think about it as being related to a specific methodology, or there's some type of awareness that, you know, we need to understand more about our customers. Let's run a survey or let's do some interviews maybe. Uh, but really good research actually comes back to knowing how to ask good questions and to understand what questions need to be asked. Uh, in order to get the insight that we need to actually make customer-centric decisions. So you can think about methods, right, as falling across a spectrum of different domains. Um, Oftentimes they're talked about in terms of whether or not they're predominantly qualitative, which is more about collecting insight versus quantitative, which is more about um, validation or sizing, or if it's attitudinal, what people can say versus behavioral, what people can tell you. Um, But I think what is really important uh, and is necessary for any organization that wants to be successful at research, it's moving away just from thinking about methods and thinking about those questions first, and then trying to uh, use that understanding of what type of question we're answering to think about what methods are available to us. Um, Because if you use an example of something like an interview, which I think everyone thinks that they know how to do or knows what it is, 
you can use an interview to answer myriad types of questions from doing you know, really broad upfront discovery that takes, you know, a really skilled um, interviewer to be able to facilitate and dig into being able to elicit those implicit needs uh, that someone might be communicating. Uh, but you can also do an interview to be asking very defined and tactical questions about things that you know that um, you need to understand about a specific experience. Um, so there are tons of methods that exist out there. Um, but the difference between doing really good research and research that I feel doesn't end up being that um, successful is starting with that question piece and then figuring out based on that, which methods are going to be the most helpful for us as we move forward. So is there like an organizing principle or construct when you're thinking about the various methods at your disposal that um, leaders should be bucketing things by, I'm assuming, you know, not all methods are created equal for certain needs. Yeah, so there's, I think, like kind of broad um, definitions that you can use and then there become some murky areas. Um, so when I tend to think about methods and classifying them, I classify them around where they are most appropriate as you're falling across a, a design process. And there are kind of four core research questions that I tend to talk about when I talk about this with um, clients and in my research, uh, depending on where you are within the design process. So you're often starting from kind of a broad discovery space where you're trying to figure out what are the problems and opportunities that exist. And the methods that tend to come into play there are more qualitative, exploratory, things that tend to be really good at capturing, you know, the context of the people that you're trying to understand. Um, but then once you understand what that problem is, you're moving into what's the best way to solve this problem, uh, which is often, again, um, uh, mostly qualitative type research, but can be supported by other things as well. And then you're moving into, okay, once we have defined you know, what the best way is, and we're moving into an actual design process that is iterating um, across you know, different types of prototypes, is this actually delivering on solving the problem uh, in a way that is meeting, you know, customer expectations um, and moving into things that we would think of as being more evaluative type methods. And then, you know, once we have experiences out in the market, we need to take that grounding foundational understanding of what success looks like from the customer's point of view and use that to do uh, monitoring research or measurement so that we can have our finger on the pulse of you know, what, what's happening with this over time? Is it continuing to deliver on what customers want and need from this that then can feed back in to more exploratory uh, research processes and more exploratory design to kind of fix things um, and iteratively um, innovate them uh, continuously. So it's not just a one and done thing. All of these things are integrated across these different kind of questions and, and where we are with our understanding um, of the people that we're serving. So what happens in a moment like today where there's a crisis, COVID-19 pandemic, and your likely your consumers are just behaving very differently than they have one day, one week, one month ago? How does this impact uh, a discipline like design research and inform experiences that likely need to be maybe changing or keeping pace with some of the, the consumer dynamics that are happening? I think you actually have to start with what the 
experiences are that your customers are going through and thinking about the degree to which, you know, the current situation is is impacting um, how people are feeling about that. Um, you know, there are certain types of experiences that are going to be you know, very intricately related <laughs> to this crisis, right? If you're thinking about anything um, related to, you know, banking or people's finances or money, that's a very simple or low-hanging fruit example there. But in a situation like that, you're going to need to kind of go through and think about what are the different experiences that customers are having and then try to you know, brainstorm as an organization, what what might be changing about people's needs and expectations from us in this current environment. I don't think that this means, right, that for every single company, you just are going to stop doing all of the research that you had planned and all of the things that were already mattering don't matter anymore. It's more about, you know, thinking about people's change in mental models. How is that going to impact the way that they are perceiving their experiences and then potentially what they might need in the future? So at first, it's just an upfront kind of strategic and evaluative question of looking at, you know, the experiences that we offer. How are these going to be impacted by this um, and whether or not that's true? And for those where there is a direct impact, um, you know, doing some of that upfront understanding right now to think about well, what shifts and what people need uh, within this, how is that going to have to feed into uh, new ways of designing? And I think the risk of something like this, right, is um, in this time is, um, you know, people might feel kind of panicky. And I think that's true even within organizations is just kind of shifting to wanting to put new content out, change the experience, try to adapt to, um, you know, meet people where they are oftentimes in a way that might not actually be reflective of what people want and need. So in doing something, you know, like responding to COVID-19 intelligently, it's going to require first, I think, being actually thoughtful and reflective about how is this actually affecting the experience of customers. And for those experiences that do need to be adjusted, what does that actually you know mean from the customer's um, point of view? And for those experiences that you know are going to require um, a new form of communication or maybe you know new features or um, ways of interacting uh, with customers, I think because this is such a a moving situation, also it's going to require kind of a what we would call a rolling research um, component, which is just a general best practice uh, for the management of any experience with a new lens of, on it, of taking a kind of specific uh, cohort of people or um, finding a group of people who are willing to kind of check in with you on probably at this case, like a weekly basis and identifying what those key things that you need to be understanding about their kind of stresses and anxieties and tracking that over time to kind of be continuously feeding into your own prioritization. So I don't think it's like a net new shift of how everything is going. It's kind of an iteration and thinking about how you are using that continuous understanding component to make sure that the decisions that you are making about how experiences are changed are actually grounded in what people actually want and need from you during this time. I would imagine that requires a bit of an operational change too, though. I mean, mm -hmm. you're talking about rolling, I think is the word you used, uh, research, because people's emotions are obviously changing and their situations are changing in a week-to-week -week basis. You have to be able to act on that and then change something about an experience. Do you think firms can do that well? I think it depends on the company. So the, mm -hmm. the companies that I think of who have the best research practices, I mean, a rolling research component would be a core part of what they're doing already as you're thinking about kind of the continuous iterations that um, make experiences really successful and great. 
research is something that really needs to be um, continuous. And if you're thinking about, again, like an end-to-end design process, right, there it comes from the very beginning of what is the problem we're solving? What does this thing need to be? But then once an experience is out there in the world, it can't just sit there, right? It needs to be kind of instrumented and monitored over time. And what I always say is that in an ideal scenario, that monitoring is not just something that is passive and metrics-driven. It also needs to include rolling usability testing or rolling interviews, tracking those things that you know that the experience is supposed to be delivering on and, you know, ensuring that it's continuing to do that while allowing you to be continuous doing continuous discovery to figure out, okay, what are things and questions that we need to be looking at with more regularity? So, for example, something that a lot of product teams do to support something like continuous discovery is actually intercept people from their software or from their website feed them into a loop of moving into kind of an automated scheduling cycle where then there are scheduled opportunities for groups uh, within that product team to ask this person or set of people questions about what their experience is. And I think there are ways to easily translate that uh, with necessary sensitivity, obviously, to refocus what that is looking at topically and to the current situation and, you know, use that to both facilitate your continuous discovery in an ongoing way, but do it in a way that's kind of reflective of the current time. So, you know, the point that you just made was in most firms that are doing research, this sort of continuous discovery, Mm -hmm. rolling research component is just core. What is the maturity level that we're talking about here? Yeah. So I think it's interesting because I think it's also very uh, industry specific when you are talking about, you know, software and tech, it just tends to be much more prevalent. And I think part of that is because the, the product is the experience. And so the necessity of understanding, you know, what's happening with that product becomes incredibly important. And the focus of what you are looking at uh, often can become more, more becomes more defined in terms of the questions that you need to be asking and how that's actually feeding into a decision-making process. Um, So I'd say, you know, we see really great research practices happen across all levels of scale uh, within tech and most of the best, um, you know, case studies that I've seen around research getting really integrated is mostly coming from um, the software world. But I think that there's a lot of lessons, you know, to be to be learned, you know, from that for kind of legacy companies, the challenge comes around. So there's been kind of a cadence over a transition over time in terms of how research works um, within these companies. And this isn't just within tech companies. I've seen this model work um, in other types of organizations as well, where a lot of times organizations start with research as being kind of an agency model uh, where it's a shared service. But the challenge with that is Oftentimes, it makes research kind of be, quote unquote, mercenary, where whatever someone thinks from any pocket of the organization, regardless of how much they understand the purpose of research or what good research is, uh, just asks for things. Uh, The research team shares what those are, and then there's kind of no input or follow through. And that's not a really effective way of running research. So a lot of organizations shifted from that to do what we call kind of an embedded or distributed model. Uh, which is still pretty prevalent, um, where researchers are kind of working within functional areas, develop a degree of domain expertise uh, within that area, and are then able to actually get integrated into processes and decision-making cycles within a core team. Uh, The challenge with that, though, um, is oftentimes then information becomes siloed, and it's difficult to understand what's happening collectively across our different experiences. How do we see the forest through the trees? 
And so I've seen most organizations move to what we would call um, kind of more of a hybrid model where there are researchers who are working in a more dedicated or more concentrated capacity uh, around certain like value streams sometimes. Sometimes it's kind of functional areas. Um, it just depends on kind of how the organization thinks about the division of experiences. But then also has other folks who are working explicitly on kind of more of those cross-cutting strategic questions that are not specific to you know, an individual component of the experience of the overall company. And that really helps uh, make sure that you're covering all of your bases um, in terms of the questions that need need to be asked. Um, and there's actually one version beyond that that I'm starting to see um, even more now where it's not just research within the focus of experience design, but a much broader remit uh, in terms of, you know, how do we make sure our experiences are really great and get research integrated into the kind of creation and maintenance of those experiences, but also how do we help our a broader organization um, understand not just what research is, but how research can help everyone do their jobs better, you know, from our support organization to our sales folks, um, you know, helping them learn how to ask the questions that they need to work well within their individual roles and scale that sense of real customer centricity and what it actually means to make a customer centric decision. That last point that you made is super interesting because we talk a lot about data literacy, but I think there's something to be said about taking either understanding the inputs that like research is giving you and how to process that information and apply it to your own job. And in addition to that, also knowing how to ask better questions, and that could be, I'm assuming, in a client call or um, a marketer who's tasked with doing like a post-event survey. And so just um, there seems to be, you know, education or or literacy on this front too as as part of the program. Yeah. And I think it also goes back to your um, first question of, design being based on instinct, right? I mean, it's, I wouldn't say that the concept of instinct is just net wrong. Um, There's kind of a a term that's out there that I've used and others have used about developing an unconscious competence about your customers, which is, you know, I actually know who these people are and what they need so much that it's just kind of, um, I have an implicit understanding of what that is, but that type of understanding doesn't come out of, thin air and, you know, takes a degree of awareness about, you know, what it means to ask a good question. And as I'm talking to people, what am I actually learning? So as you're thinking about what instinct means, you do want to be designing based on instinct, but that instinct needs to be coming from a continuous kind of ubiquitous learning about customers that's grounded in an actual understanding of the discipline and the kind of technical skill of what it means to do good research. I think part of the challenge with research is that if you think about it as just being, you know, talking to people or doing interviews, it's something where, you know, anyone can say, well, I know how I've had a conversation with someone, I know how to do that, but it's to do it well is actually much more complex. There are all types of biases that we bring into the way that we, you know, speak to people or interpret information, but also from, you know, the people who we're speaking with or the customers that we are doing research of where, you know, they're not intentionally trying to lead us astray, but, you know, there's factors like social desirability or, um, you know, not understanding their own subconscious motivations uh, and where those are coming from. So 
it's not that instinct is wrong, right? It's that what is that instinct based on? And do we actually know enough about how to learn about people and how to embed that into the way that we're making decisions so that that instinct continues to be refined and grows uh, as we learn more and as our customers' needs change? It sounds like some of what you're describing could be partially solved with a voice of the customer program. But I think you're also saying that more is required from a mindset perspective. Is that right? What is important there, right, is what does the voice of the customer actually tell you (laughs) about your customers? Um, Real customer centricity comes down to the decisions that are made in the business and the understanding of the customer that comes into those decisions. Um, you know, you're using some type of information to make decisions and it might be assumptions, it might be bad data and, or it might be good research. And so, um, you know, when you're thinking about the piece of the pie that a voice of the customer program plays, though, it's really important. It's only really filling in a specific component of that. First of all, because oftentimes it's, this is something that can be fixed and should be. Oftentimes it's divorced from any type of design process or any type of follow-up. You know, we always say, or my colleagues who do research on voice of the customer would say, this is about closing the loop. And sometimes there is a close the loop that's about like kind of a one-on-one interaction, a specific request that a customer had um, that they need to know that that was fulfilled. But part of the point of a voice of a customer program is also to start to see, you know, what are the themes that we're learning over time? And there's only so much you can learn about you know, what that's actually telling you. And so those need to be fed into a closing of the loop, so to speak, that's more about, you know, how do we actually go about really understanding what this problem means and how we actually need to be solving it in a way that's going to, you know, improve improve the experience for, for our customers. So there are certain things that continuously surveying people can help you understand in terms of, you know, tracking key themes over time, but you also need to know what those themes are that need to be tracked. Um, you know, what actually matters to people, which takes more than just surveying them. You have to have actual conversations with people and kind of understand the the nuance of the space that you're playing in to even think about what we should be measuring uh, from a voice of the customer perspective. So I think that there is a lot of variability in terms of how much organizations really value research Um and I wouldn't say it's just like a, you know, new, newer tech company thing versus legacy organizations. Like if you look at a lot of the legacy, like CPG organizations, where the degree to which research is baked into the way that they work and the advanced capabilities that they have had for decades in terms of um, getting continuous in-depth understanding about people is incredibly um, robust. But I think that, you know, it, it goes back to that point of, you know, even within technology companies, often research is the last skill to be added because, again, to something that I mentioned earlier, as you're continuing to scale, the ability to actually, you know, understand who customers are becomes increasingly complex, not just because you're getting more customers, but also because as your organization grows, um, getting on that same consensus internally about what actually matters uh, becomes increasingly complex because people are hearing different things and prioritizing different things and what they think to be true about customers uh, becomes more and more diluted. But for whatever reason, uh, research as the anecdote to that problem oftentimes is not evident. And and I would say that's not unique to research, right? We see that as an issue with design as well. 
not to make everything about COVID-19, but there is this notion of, you know, balancing being fast and not being perfect. So maybe we could just dive into that in the context of research. Yeah, I think there's a couple of things there. So one is that, you know, because I think people tend to devalue not just research as a net practice, but I would say the skill and the art and the technical capability of research as a net practice, what sometimes happens is organizations might have some you know, type of realization that they need to be speaking with customers more, but just have someone who doesn't really know how to do that very well, like leading the charge uh, on that front. And then a lot of times what happens there is that ends up undermining the perception of the entire practice, because what you end up getting back is not anything that is that valuable. Um, You know, I hear about this all the time from um, even organizations that have very skilled researchers within them, you know, within pockets of the organization, they'll just say things like, well, you know, we just learned what we already knew, like this was a waste of our time. And that's not an indication, right, that research is a waste of time, uh, you know, as a total discipline. It's an indication that you're not really doing research well or aren't researching the right things. So there just becomes this kind of uh, the opposite of a virtuous loop where you're doing research, but it's bad research. It's not giving you valuable information. And then that makes people, you know, think that research isn't that impactful or useful as a practice. And then to your other point, right, this devotion to speed above all else, I think that leads to, you know, many more challenges than just undermining research. I think it leads to, you know, bad experiences oftentimes. Um, And it's not that speed isn't important, but what I see the most intelligent organizations do is that they have a degree of malleability with how they think about speed right? It's, it's about being able to critically think about the different decisions that you're making and the risk associated with them and when it actually is required to slow down and understand more versus when it's okay to move fast. Um, and that's a big differentiator, I think, between organizations where research really takes root and, um, and starts making a big impact versus where it just kind of ends up staying in this really small tactical box. Uh, you really have to make some trade-offs in thinking about what is most important to research and why, who are the customers that are involved, uh, what is the risk if we get this wrong, you know, and so on. And using that to actually inform the cadence and what speed needs to look like as opposed to just deciding that everything needs to be done within a two-week sprint. Kelly, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. If you like what you heard today, subscribe to Forrester's What It Means podcast on iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. To continue the conversation, follow Forrester on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks for listening.